the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read in Philip's version. I'm going to read from chapter 24, verse 32. Well, perhaps we'll read from verse 36. Verse 36 of chapter 24. But about that actual day and time, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. For just as life went on in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the very day that Noah went into the ark and knew nothing about the flood until it came and destroyed them all. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one is taken and one is left behind. Two women will be grinding at the handmill, one is taken and one is left behind. You must be on the alert then for you do not know when your master is coming. You can be sure of this, however, that if the householder had known what time of night the burglar would arrive, he would have been ready for him and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That is why you must always be ready, for you do not know what time the Son of Man will arrive. Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master put in charge of his household to give the others their food at the proper time? Well, he is fortunate if his master finds him doing that duty on his return. Believe me, he will promote him to look after all his property. But if he should be a bad servant who says to himself, my master takes his time about returning and should begin to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, that servant's master will return suddenly and unexpectedly and will punish him severely and send him off to share the penalty of the unfaithful to his bitter sorrow and regret. In those days the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were sensible and five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. But the sensible ones brought their lamps and oil in their flasks as well. Then, as the bridegroom was a very long time, they all grew drowsy and fell asleep. But in the middle of the night there came a shout, Wake up! Here comes the bridegroom. Out you go to meet him. And up got all the bridesmaids and attended to their lamps. The foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Please give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Oh no, return the sensible ones. There might not be enough for all of us. Better go to the oil shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they'd gone off to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And those bridesmaids who were ready went in with him for the festivities and the door was shut behind them. Later on, the rest of the bridesmaids came and said, Oh, please, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you, I don't know you. So be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the time. It is just like a man going abroad who called his household servants together before he went and handed his property over to them to manage. 
He gave one £5,000, another £2,000, and another £1,000, according to their respective abilities. Then he went away. The man who'd received £5,000 went out at once, and by doing business with this sum, he made another £5,000. Similarly, the man with £2,000 made another £2,000. But the man who'd received £1,000 went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Some years later, the master of these servants arrived and went into the accounts with them. The one who had the £5,000 came in and brought him an additional £5,000 with the words, You gave me £5,000, sir. Look, I've increased it by another £5,000. Well done, said his master. You're a sound, reliable servant. You've been trustworthy over a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of much more. Come in and share your master's rejoicing. Then the servant, who had received £2,000, came in and said, You gave me £2,000, sir. Look, here's £2,000 more and I've managed, uh, that I've managed to make by it. Well done, said the uh, master. You're a sound, reliable servant. You've been trustworthy over a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of many. Come in and share your master's pleasure. <clears throat> then the man who had received the £1,000 came and said, Sir, I always knew you were a hard man, hard man, reaping where you never sowed and collecting where you never laid out. So I was scared, and I went off and hid your £1,000 in the ground. Here is your money intact. You're a wicked, lazy servant, his master told him. You say you knew that I reap where I never sowed and collect where I never laid out? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And when I came, I should at any rate have received what belongs to me with interest. Take his thousand pounds away from him and give it to the man who now has the ten thousand. For the man who has something will have more given to him and will have plenty. But as for the man who has nothing, even his nothing will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where he can weep and wail over his stupidity. But when the Son of Man comes in his splendor with all his angels with him, <clears throat> then he will take his seat on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate men from each other like a shepherd separating sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who have won my father's blessing, take your inheritance, the kingdom reserved for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was lonely, and you made me welcome. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you came and looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to see me there. Then the true men will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you lonely and make you welcome, or see you naked and clothe you, or see you ill or in prison and go to see you? And the king will reply, I assure you that whatever you did for the humblest of my brothers, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Out of my presence, cursed as you are, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was lonely and you never made me welcome. When I was naked you did nothing to clothe me. When I was sick and in prison you never cared about me. Then they too will answer him, Lord, 
When did we ever see you hungry, or thirsty, or lonely, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and fail to look after you? Then the king will answer them with these words, I assure you that whatever you fail to do to the humblest of my brothers, you fail to do to me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the true men to eternal life. Well now this evening we come to this fifth and last discourse in the Gospel according to Matthew. You will remember that we spent the last part of our study last week um, introducing it and you had the notes in front of you um, covering that study, especially um, the last whole page and part of the first page. Uh, which covers all the introduction to this very important part of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm not going to go over it at all because in one sense what we have to say this evening does cover a little of that ground from a different angle. But I would suggest to, for those of you who were not here last week that you do carefully study um, those notes with the Bible open in front of you. If you want to get something out of these studies, they mean nothing to you unless you um, study the notes with the Bible and also you read the passage um, before and after uh, these studies. Now, <clears throat> I want to plunge straight away if we're going to cover um, these two chapters, I want to plunge straight away into um, into both of them. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 24. Now the first 35 verses of chapter 24 I have entitled Signs of the Temple's Destruction and the Coming of Christ and the End of the World. If you take chapter 24 you will see that the occasion for this whole discourse was that when the Lord Jesus was leaving the temple finally, the disciples pointed out to him some of the beauty of the architecture and of the design. And he answered by predicting that not one stone would be left on another in that building. All would be destroyed. This troubled the disciples and we're told by Mark that Ma that um, uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John went privately to him on Mount Olivet and there they asked him a twofold question, two questions in one. They said, when will the temple be destroyed? That was the first question. And secondly, when will you come and uh, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now there's no doubt that in the disciples' mind the three events were all bound up together. They obviously thought that the destruction of the temple, the coming of Christ and the close of the age were synonymous. They were all, as it were, of the same phase at the very end. However, for us, we know a little better, having, uh, looking back now on 2,000 years of history, we know that the Lord, this question was in fact twofold. The first was, when is the temple going to be destroyed? The second is, when it, what is the sign of your coming and the close of the age? So, we have within uh, these uh, 
chapters 24 and 25 the answer to two questions now if you look at the first 35 verses of Matthew 24 I have entitled them signs of the temple's destruction and the coming of Christ and end of the age now we have already noted last week um, how remarkably this prophecy contained in these 35 verses was fulfilled in 70 AD the actual end of Jerusalem the destruction of the Jewish nation and their dispersal throughout the whole inhabited world from that day to this came about uh, in 70 AD after a siege which began at the Passover in April and lasted right through till July. July was the actual breaking into the temple and then uh, another month or two and the whole uh, conflict was over and finished. It has been estimated that during that siege of Jerusalem one million Jews died. It's a very high figure, but you have to understand that the Jews at that time never did believe that Jerusalem would be destroyed. They believed that God was going to divinely intervene. And when the Passover came up and the Roman armies came into Palestine, they all still flocked up from Galilee, from Judea, from all over the land. They flocked up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The result was that the city was swelled with thousands and thousands and thousands of pilgrims this added to the horrors and the hazards of the siege cannibalism was reported mothers at their children and others had fallen by the way and all kinds of horrors were perpetrated during the siege <clears throat> over two million it is again estimated um, were sold into slavery um, as a result of the destruction of Jerusalem. The whole flower of Jewish manhood was sold into slavery and were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. It was a terrible judgment. Indeed, I suppose it could be said that it was the worst um, siege of Jerusalem and probably the worst scenes that Jerusalem had ever uh, witnessed. The temple was burnt to the ground and um, supposedly by a mistake and, uh, the te and Jerusalem itself was raised. There was only a tower or two left standing. The rest of the city was raised completely to the ground. One of the most terrible features of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was the treachery and cruelty practiced by Jew on Jew. Now in all the trials of the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, before there had been traitors, but never had there been treachery and rivalry and jealousy and cruelty practiced by Jew upon Jew, brother upon brother, as in the siege of Jerusalem. There were three main rival factions and they simply engaged themselves in a kind of inter-civil war. Now this is all the more remarkable because this is what the Lord Jesus had said. 
uh, that that and they would hate one another and so on and so on and uh, uh, it's all rather remarkable because this was in fact a feature of the destruction of Jerusalem. Another little point was that in the 40 years between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, roughly between 30 um, AD and, and 70 AD, in those 40 years, a number of false messiahs appeared who, who drew quite a following. This again is in these 35 verses, that one of the signs preparatory to the end, not bringing ushering in the end, but preparatory to the last phase, would be the false messiahs that would arise, drawing people after them, leading people astray. There is quite a lot. If you want to read an account of the siege of Jerusalem, then you ought to take from the library, you are not allowed to take it out, I'm afraid, you have to read it up there, the um, Josephus's uh, history, the war, the, 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 the wars of the Jews, you can read that, and you'll find a full-scale eyewitness account, Josephus actually was considered to be a traitor because he worked with the Romans, but he was an eyewitness of all that happened in the siege of Jerusalem. I'm just going to read just a little from this, just to give you a little idea before we pass on to the greater fulfillment that lies still in the future. Accordingly, in April of, a of AD 70, Titus invested Jerusalem, but so competent were the Jewish people of the invincibility of the city that on the very eve of its investment, large numbers of Jewish pilgrims went up there as usual for the Passover festival. Their presence in the city, once it was closely besieged, added to the difficulties of the defence. The defence was already embarrassed by the rivalry between the three factions mentioned above. As the siege wore on, the horrors of famine and even cannibalism were added to the hazards of war, but the defenders had no thought of capitulating, least of all when Titus, using Josephus as his interpreter, urged the advantages of timely surrender upon them. On July the 24th, the Romans captured the fortress of Antonia. Twelve days later, the daily sacrifice in the temple was discontinued, according to Daniel. On August the 27th, the temple gates were burnt. Two days later, on the anniversary of the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians in 587 uh, BC, the sanctuary itself was set on fire and destroyed. By September the 26th, the whole city was in Titus's hands. It was razed to the ground, only three towers of Herod's palace on the western wall being left standing with part of the western wall itself. When the temple area was taken by the Romans and the sanctuary itself was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards, the Roman army, into the sacred precinct, set them up opposite the eastern gate, and offered sacrifice to them there, acclaiming Titus as Imperator, victorious commander, as they did so. The Roman custom of offering sacrifice to their standards had already been commented on by a Jewish writer as a symptom of their pagan arrogance. But the offering of such sacrifice in the temple court was the supreme insult to the God of Israel. This action, following as it did the cessation of the daily sacrifice three weeks earlier, must have seemed to many Jews, as it evidently did to Josephus, a new and final fulfillment of Daniel's vision of a time when the continual burnt offering would be taken away and the abomination of desolation set up. The 
capture and sacking of the city was accompanied by indiscriminate slaughter. Large numbers of the population were enslaved, large numbers were crucified, others were destined for gladiatorial games, while 700 were reserved for Titus's triumphal procession in Rome. Now that is the, that is the actual fulfillment, historic fulfillment, of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in these first 35 verses of Matthew. I have read them because I want you to understand at the beginning that there has been a first fulfillment of these words of our Lord Jesus Christ concerning the destruction of the temple. However, when we read uh, these verses, especially verse from verse 4 to 26, we see a very not only a very real fulfillment in these events, we also see, as I pointed out last week, that there is much in those verses not wholly fulfilled, which has yet a future fulfillment. Now that's what's bothering us this evening. What about this future fulfillment, which as you read through, you remember last week we pointed out the verses, it was not fulfilled in that destruction in 70 AD. Well, now let's have a look at these uh, verses. <clears throat> First of all, from verse 4, beginning at verse 4 to verse 14, I have entitled this, The First Birth Pangs of the coming kingdom. I have taken a word out of, from these very verses. The first birth pangs of the coming kingdom. If you look at verse 8, it says, all this is but the beginning of the sufferings. Now your authorized version says, all this is the beginning of sorrows. Your revised version says, all this is the beginning of travail. The Revised Standard Version says all this is the beginning of the sufferings. Literally, the word suffering, sorrow, travel is birth pangs. Birth pangs. And the Amplified has put it literally like this. Uh, this is the early pains of the birth pangs. The first warning pain of birth. Now it's a wonderful thought when you think of it. Instead of being filled with darkness, suffering, tribulation, anguish, false messiahs, heresies, false sects, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, instead we suddenly see it in a new light. This is the early pains of the birth pain the birth pangs of the coming kingdom. It's the, the first sign that the last phase of world and human history is being ushered in. So I have entitled these verses from verse 4 to 14, the first birth pangs of the coming kingdom. The signs which we find in these verses do not signify the climax of the end, but the beginning of the end. In other words, you will see here, um, verse um, 6, 
last part of verse 6, but the end is not yet. Now many people take these signs here about false messiahs and wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom as the sign of the end. But the Lord Jesus did not say it was the sign of the end. He said it was the first warnings of the end coming. Now that's an important point. The end is not yet. A little later on, in verse 14, he says, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. And the end isn't just a sudden dropping of the curtain. It is the last actual phase with its climax in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. So now we have three things. Now note them. The first is a period ushering in the final phase. Then the final phase itself, and then the climax in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The climax is given in the final sign, which is called, Then shall appear in the heavens the sign of the Son of Man. We shall come to that in a moment. That's the climax. Where after that, he appears. So in these verses, from verse 4 to 14, you have the phase that ushers in the end. What are the signs? Well, first in verse 4 and 5. Take heed that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. I think we can say here, it is the growth of false sects and heresies. It is not only that people come saying, I am the Christ, but I think it is that they produce a Christian church, which is not a church and not Christian. So we have things like the Church of Christ the Scientist. <laughs> Nothing to do with him at all. We have the Unity School of Christianity. We have Jehovah's Witnesses. We had the house of the Latter-day Saints. I mean, nothing to do with Latter-day Saints or the house of God. The Unity School of Christianity is not unity and it's not Christianity. In other words, we have these extraordinary, this extraordinary growth of false sects claiming to represent Christ. Of course, in some cases, they have got false prophets at their head. Uh, there are, of course, also it can be taken literally, that there are those who claim to be Christ. But what we're trying to underline just now is the fact that here, in this chapter, we have the phenomenal growth of all sects. Now, there have always been heresies and have always been sects. So, how can this be an especial sign? I think it is an especial sign because of its extraordinary growth. Now, do you know that the two, what are the two fastest growing movements in the world? The two fastest growing movements in the world um, are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. House of the Latter-day Saints. These are the two fastest growing sects in Europe, apart from America and the world. Christianity is far behind them, and even Islam, which is making strides uh, in other parts of the world, is behind the, the growth rate of Russellism and Mormonism. <coughs> Well, this is one of the signs. Now, if you look back, you will see that in the last 
hundred years or so, there has been the growth of all these great and large sects. They are all modern sects on the whole. On the whole. Not in every case, but on the whole. This is one of the signs that ushers in the end. Another one is the, uh, what I have entitled in verse, from verse 6 to 8, universal unrest of all kinds. Listen. Um, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. <coughs> now, again, how can this be a sign? Think. There have always been wars. There have always been rumors of wars. Nations have always been rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There have been famines through the whole long course of human history that have wiped out sometimes millions of people. There have been pestilences, in other words, the spread of infectious diseases, like the, think of the, of, the, of, the, of the Black Death, things like that. There have been these things. How then can these things be a sign ushering in the last phase of world history. Well, obviously, they must be unique. In other words, it will be universal and their coordination and timing will be unique. Now, of course, we understand that uh, that straight away in the matter of war, that whereas a little war in China or a war in South America had no effect upon the world at large, to tonight, if a war starts in China or in South America, before very long, the whole world is involved. In other words, it is the possibility of universal global conflict. And the same with famine. You see, once famine really decimates the world's population, the possibilities after it are terrible. When men have no food in their stomach, they will do anything. And the bitterness and the frustration that comes out of that is the seed of a lot of trouble. Communism came out of empty stomachs. Every kind of ideology which has enslaved millions of people has come out of empty stomachs and unhappiness. Now, all these things are connected. Famine, disease are connected. If we have earthquakes with them, you really have catastrophes uh, of the very first order. Uh, the signs that are supposed to be ushering in this end, therefore, are these. And then again, uh, we read in verses 9 to 13 of per the persecution of Christians and its consequences. In other words, there will be fierce persecution of Christians. Now, you may or may not know that this night over, over one half, in over one half of this world, Christians are persecuted, whether in violently Roman Catholic countries or communist countries or in Islamic countries. Christians are persecuted. The degree of persecution actually differs from country to country. But there is persecution. And I can't stop to prove it to you tonight. But if you would read a book like Come Wind, Come Weather, your, the foundations of your faith, I am sure, will be first shocked and shattered and then strengthened because you will see exactly what is in these words here. You see, the Lord said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. The word tribulation is pressure. 
That's the point. They will deliver you up to pressure. Now, it's not that they actually decapitate us. In the first storm of trouble in Vietnam, in Burma, in China, and elsewhere, there has been the martyrdom in the most horrifying manner of Christians, especially Christian leaders, to put fear into the rest of the people. They crucified. In the, in the communist uprising in China, they actually crucified hundreds of Chinese pastors and elders. Some took three days to die so that the fear, fear might be put into the whole of the country areas. Later on, the Communist Party disowned the treatment, saying that it was the savagery of simple peasants who were bitter against capitalist elements. Nevertheless, that's what happened. Now, you see, the, the, the way that it is done now is not by brutal savagery so much, although we found it in the Congo and elsewhere, but by pressure. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Your children, you're not allowed to tell your children about Christ. You're not allowed to read the Bible to them. You're not allowed to breathe anything about Christ to them. Or they will unwittingly tell the teacher at school and the teacher will report to you, and as in Russia, there are parents in prison for reading the Bible to their children. Pressure. When you're at work, pressure is brought to bear upon you to, to be a, a party member and so on and so forth. So they deliver you up to pressure and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then will many fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Do you know that in the trial of Brother Nee, he was accused of adultery with 100 women, but 18 women from his own company bore witness against him that he committed adultery with them. And upon that testimony, he was put, which was broadcast to the whole nation, he was put in prison. On the matter of capitalism, they brought Christian members of the company in Howden Road who testified against him that he had exploited them and had stolen money from them. All of it was lies. It was brainwashing technique which had broken down the people. They took hold of weak people who were, had always been bitter, frustrated elements in the company. The same thing could happen here. The communists know everything. They know everything. And so they got hold of them and they said, look here, your children will be taken away from you, you'll lose your job and so on. Now look, you just sit down and tell us all. We know that you've been unhappy with brother so-and-so. Now you just tell us. And out of that, they push and push and push and push until the whole thing's done. This is how, how it ends up by saying, the love of the many will grow cold. Because we are so disillusioned, so shocked. You've heard Harold Popov's testimony. You heard how his own people witnessed against him. You heard how he said their hearts grew cold because they were so disillusioned and so disappointed they didn't, they couldn't trust in one another. Even when they had a prayer meeting, they couldn't trust one another. Because they didn't know who it was in the company who was reporting everything to the police. That's persecution of a new kind. And that's what's spoken of here. Read come wind, come weather. Read to encouragement of the, of the scriptures by Helen Willis uh, and other things. And you will see for yourself something of what uh, is here in this chapter. Another sign, and the last one in this thing, is the, at the same time, worldwide proclamation 
of the gospel. Now, just because a country is persecuting believers doesn't stop today the gospel going in. All over the world tonight, the gospel is being beamed to every part. But there are people in Moscow who can hear the gospel when it's not jammed. Uh, the fact of the matter is that through broadcasting we can beam the gospel all over the world. It's being done into China, it's being done into Tibet, it's being done into Central Asia, it's being done all over the world. And the sign that will usher in the actual end uh, is here. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testament to all nations. Now my dear friend, the church has been on this globe uh, if we date its birth, Pentecost, and not back to Abraham, uh, if we date its birth at Pentecost, the church has been on this earth something like 1900 years. <coughs> Over 1900 years. Out of those 1900 years, at least 1700, or more or less 1700, were confined to Europe. A most extraordinary fact. It is only in the last 150, 200 years at the, at the outside that the gospel has been carried to the ends of the earth. For years and years and years the church slept and slept through a millennium. At the very beginning, it is true, the gospel was carried to India, it was carried to China, it was carried into Africa, it was carried, even we believe, to the British Isles within the first century of the church. But then after that, it all crystallized, and then began the retreat, the retreat, everywhere retreat. Now, is it not a remarkable fact that the gospel suddenly, in the last uh, 150 years or more, outside 200 years, has been carried to the ends of the earth? Is it not an extraordinary fact that tonight we are using media such as television, broadcasting, literature, remember that hundreds of years ago most of the world could neither read nor write? Now, with all the literacy programs, we are able to get the gospel into all kinds of lands, into all kinds of people. And you've even got a, a mission like gospel recordings, taking the actual gospel into tribes that are Stone age and getting over to them the gospel in their own tongue. Is this not extraordinary? <laughs> well, it is one of the signs. Now it says, then the end will come. In other words, then the last phase of world history will come. Now the next portion I have entitled the intense tribulation at the end, the intense tribulation at the end, from verse 15 to verse 28. Now, I've taken this little title from verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world un until now, no, and never will be. Great tribulation, in other words, unique in the whole of world history. Now, um, why is it unique? I take it that it will be unique in its severity, its intensity, and its universality. That's why it is unique. It has never been such a time before and never will be after. It is absolutely unique. Now, my dear friends, this may well make our knees knock. 
if we don't know where to look. Because, and most of us don't read enough, because if we read a little of church history, we surely must tremble at the thought of tribulation greater than anything in, in the history of God's people. I think of the times in the history of God's people, of Egypt, of Assyria, of Babylon, of what the Edomites did to the people of God. And I think of Antiochus Epiphanes um, and what, that, what happened in that terrible period that he became the archetype of the Antichrist, the man of sin. He was so vile and so wicked, almost the, in, in per, almost the incarnation of the devil himself. And then this time when Jerusalem was laid siege to And then, why, you've only got to read m more modern history. You think of what happened to the Huguenots. You think what happened to the Anabaptists. Why, I, I, I shudder every time I pass through Salzburg when I go past some of the fountains and know that hundreds of people were drowned there. Men, women, children, whole families drowned in, 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 in the fountains just because they'd been baptized by immersion. And the blood is still upon the city in the atmosphere itself just as the blood of the Huguenots is still in the atmosphere of France. It is there indelibly. These are part and parcel of history. When you know what happened in Bohemia and the thousands that were slaughtered in the most terrible way, well, I mean, and you come just down to the last decade or two, and you think of, of Hitler's gas chambers and concentration camps and what happened in them. And then we read there will be a period of great tribulation such as has never been, no, and never will be. Well, I say, one's legs tremble if it were not for the fact that I am sure it will not last too long. Its intensity will be tremendous, it will be unique in its intensity, unique in its severity, and unique in its universality. So terrible is that tribulation that the Lord Jesus said, if God did not intervene, no human being would survive. Now what does that mean? Now this may be the key to what the Lord means here by tribulation. Is it in fact the same as the persecution of Christians? Is this tribulation the result of, shall we say, nuclear war? Because it is an extraordinary statement. Listen to it. I read it in the Revised Standard Version. 22, verse 20. If those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In other words, there would be no elect for God to come back to, for Christ to return for if those days weren't shortened. That's how intense it will be. Now what is it? How is it that no human being could survive unless they start lobbing about nuclear warheads to such a point that literally through radioactivity apart from the explosions and the force and power of them, no human being could survive. Everything would be contaminated unless the Lord was forced to intervene and cut short the days. I don't know. I'm only making suggestions. Someone asked me whether I was going to give a date for the, for the Lord's coming. Uh, half in humour. Uh, or I hope. 
holy in humour. Um, but I said, uh, no, I would not obviously be able to give any such thing at all. But, um, and nor can I give dogmatic signs. I can only draw out what is in the word of God and ask you questions to provoke you to think. The intense tribulation at the end. There is something mysterious and terrible in these words. Terrible in these words. Well then, of course, we, if we go on, uh, what about verse 15 from verse 15 to 20? So when you see the desolating sacrilege or the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Now, we, it, has that been wholly fulfilled? We know it was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Will it be fulfilled in a yet future destruction of Jerusalem? Now that Jerusalem has come back into Jewish hands completely for the first time in 2,000 years, Will there something be done and will in fact um, uh, this be fulfilled or are we to spiritualize it and, and not incorrectly and understand this, understand it to mean the abomination of desolation that this is the man of sin, the Antichrist, taking over the church. Now this is exactly what you have in 2 Thessalonians and chapter uh, 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, he that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. I have always said that spiritually is the abomination of desolation. The takeover, the last great takeover, the biggest takeover in, in the whole history of man. Satan's takeover bid for the church. He's done it in China. And China, I think, in many ways, and Russia, are examples of that great Baptist church in Moscow that everyone raves about. Uh, uh, I mean, the pastors there are puppets. There is no other company allowed in Moscow, and the same in China. When Brother Ni was taken away, they, they, new elders rose up from the midst who were godly spiritual men. Two years later they arrested every one of them, and most of them have died in prison, and their families have starved. And what did they do then? After that, they found out the elements in the company that had always been unspiritual and difficult. It's incredible what they found out, and they put them in charge. They took over the whole, the whole church that way. The man of sin, sitting in the temple of God, giving it out that he is God. The takeover of the church. Well, anyway, what we do know, we do know that the end of world history is going to see a counterfeit harlot church. We do know that. An apostate church, which is no church at all and has no faith. We know that. And then you must also note the warning against false Christs and false prophets in verses 23 to 26. 
Um, now you've got this again, you see, it's as if the Lord again and again is warning us against these things. And uh, here you've got a repetition in one sense of what we have in verse 4 and 5. Now I want you to mark especially what he says here. This time he doesn't say just, I, I am the Christ and lead you astray. He says here, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders even so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, generally speaking, I have found it so that most Christians believe they will spot an imposter immediately. They forget entirely what the scripture says, that when the devil comes to us, he is not that silly. I mean, most Christians think the devil is so silly that he wears his colours uh, sort of nailed to the marsh so that they can see him, spot him a mile off. The devil's not like that. He comes as a minister of righteousness and an angel of light. He comes insidiously, seductively, deceitfully. That's how he comes. And this is what it means here. We'll show great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now that's so what it says about the end. So that in this last intense part of the tribulation, many will say, Christ is here, Christ is there. They will prophesy this, they will prophesy that, and they will give evidence that they are of God by great signs and wonders, which people will go, ah, must be of God, must be of God, look. See? At the same time, make no mistake, but God also will show signs and wonders in the last phase of world history, as great as anything that the devil can do. If the devil will come with lying uh, wonders and powers and so on, God also will revive those miracles and signs in the church as they were at the beginning. It always has happened. Whenever there has been a period of great unrest and travail or tribulation, God has restored things which are a sign and evidence of his presence in an outward way. They do not themselves build up, but they are a sign to any man or woman who is honest. Nevertheless, the greatest need in the end will be discernment and discretion and wisdom to see through everything and understand what really is of God and what is not of God. Now you will notice in verse 27 and 28 we have a very interesting two verses because in this period of intense tribulation we have the great comfort. Listen to it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it doesn't matter what the devil does or what the pressure is or what the tribulation is or what kind of nuclear uh, war there is, if there is such a thing, the fact of the matter is the coming of the Son of Man will just be like lightning. It will flash from the east to the west. The whole world will see his coming in an instant. He'll be here. Now we have a most extraordinary illustration of this which is a very difficult one indeed. Now in the authorised version, the revised version, it's put very discreetly. i better read it to you. It's put rather beautifully. This is how it's put, verse 20, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be. Now the authorised version puts it much more discreetly and says, wheresoever the, where the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. The revised version puts it a little more bluntly, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. I must say, the authorised version immediately leads us to suppose that the body is the Lord. It may even be the church. 
When the body is there, the eagles will be gathered together. But when you read it in Phillips, then I'm afraid it's a little bit of a shock. Wherever there is a dead body, there the vultures will flock together. <laughs> now you have to ask yourself, what does this illustration, what is it of? What is the illustration of? Wherever there is a dead body, there the vultures are. Is it an illustration, a rather, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, pungent illustration, um, of the fact that when the Lord comes, he will draw his own to himself? Yet somehow... I don't know, it seems to be, although the Lord spoke of his coming as being like a thief in the night, and we have got that there, yet somehow a dead body, a carcass, and vultures gathering together, I wonder whether in fact the Lord is not saying to us, false prophets draw false people. Very, very simple. Birds of a feather flock together, that's how we put it. <laughs> Birds of a feather flock together. See? so that if there is some ground in you or me which is ground for Satan then upon that he can work and draw us into heresy the pure in heart see God well now there are two possibilities in this illustration I'll leave it to you to work it could be and it's wonderful to think of it that when the Lord comes we shall be irresistibly drawn to him just like vultures are drawn somehow by scent by some kind of built-in radar equipment to a dead body. As soon as someone falls in the desert, there they are. You can't even see the vultures often, but as soon as someone's dead, you have to know, people say, well, there's someone dead. Something dead, because the vultures are blind. How do they know? We don't know. Is this a sign, that an illustration, that one day we shall be drawn to the Lord as soon as he comes, the rapture of the saints? Or is it this other. Well, I think from both we can learn a lot. <coughs> then we have the parable, um, uh, then we have rather in from verse um, 29 to 31 we have what I've entitled the coming of the Son of Man. Not just the, the final phase but the actual end. And we now have the signs of the climax of the end. Now what are the signs? Immediately after the tribulation or the pressure of those days, the word says, um, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and stars will fall from heaven. So these are the last signs, disturbances in the celestial bodies, in the heavens. The sun, the moon, disturbances in the sun, the moon, and the stars. There is nothing more uh, more given to, uh, to frightening people than when something goes wrong with the sun, the moon, or the stars. Luke puts it, they will be, men's hearts will faint for fear for the roaring of the waves. That's a very interesting thing, if it is in any way connected with the moon. But anyway, all we do know is that the celestial bodies will be disturbed. And that will be one of the last signs of the climax of the end the very end. The final sign of all we have in verse 30, the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man. Now I wonder what this sign is. Now some commentators say that the sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man himself, but I can't understand that. The sign of the Son of Man. They say it is the Son of Man. What is the sign of the Son of Man? I would love to know. But what it says is that in the 
the heavens will appear the sign of the Son of Man. Well, we know that a star appeared when the Lord was born. Is it going to be some new and remarkable star? I don't know. I've often wondered whether it would be the sign of, of David, the cross of David. Because if it was, that would explain why the Jewish people would recognize him as the Messiah. And also would explain, explain a possible gathering in amongst the Islamic peoples who also recognize the, the, the Star of David as a sacred symbol. I don't know, but it is the sign of the Messiah. And it will appear in the heavens, whatever it is. Uh, it'll be wonderful. That's the <coughs> final sign. And then we have the rapture. Uh, of the elect. Verse 31. Now the people who are um, uh, taken are those who are the redeemed of God, the elect. And the Lord says, verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I used to think that the trumpet, uh, the sound of the trumpet, was uh, symbolic. I don't anymore. Um, I, it is so extraordinary that this, the trumpet comes in in every single passage to do with the Lord's coming. And I, I'm almost certain that there will be an actually heard trumpet call that will simply pierce through the whole inhabited earth. You've got it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you've got it in 1 Corinthians 15, you've got it here, again and again in Revelation, the trumpet shall sound. It's a wonderful thought, and that's the rapture of the saints. Oh, what a day that will be, when the dead in Christ go first, and then we which are alive and remain caught up together. Why, the miracle, we say, what a miracle it be when people who've been dead for thousands of years, and their bodies are disintegrated, suddenly all the molecules, the atoms will be brought together, and they've got new bodies. But I say, it'll be just as great a miracle if I'm looking at you, and suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, you're changed. Just like that, you're still you, and yet in the twinkling of an eye, you've got a heavenly body, you've got a resurrection body, just like that, before you can say Jack Robinson. <laughs> now, I'm putting it in my language, but the scripture says in the twinkling of an eye, which is just uh, sort of colloquial, isn't it? Have you ever thought of it? Twinkling of an eye, rather saucy in one way. <laughs> twinkling of an eye. I mean, I mean, when you think of it, how does an eye twinkle? Just twinkle, suddenly. <laughs> you, you, you don't, an eye doesn't twinkle all the time, does it? You just catch an eye twinkling. And in that short moment of time, your body will be changed and you will be caught up to be with the Lord. What a miracle. I say it will be just simply tremendous. It's a day for us to look forward to. And furthermore, this blessed hope will get hold of us more and more as we approach the end. For as we begin to see everything breaking up and as we see evil gaining ground on every side and as we pass into this intense tribulation, then we shall look at what, what did the Lord say? Lift up your heads, he said, for your redemption draweth nigh. There's no way out backwards, there's no way out forwards, there's no way out downwards, the only way is upwards. So he said, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. That will be the way out. In the twinkling of an eye, all oh, the miracles that day. Remember when we buried one saint and they were put placed under a rather large slab of stone. Someone said out loud at the grave, oh, it was a dear saint. Someone said, oh, what a miracle there's going to be on the day of resurrection in this graveyard when that great slab gets moved. <laughs> it's true. 
the miracles that will take place on that day when the dead in Christ rise first and then we who are alive and remain changed in the twinkling of an eye when this corruptible puts on incorruption that's a marvellous thought all the aches and the pains and the decay of this body and in an ear twinkling of an eye it's all gone and we have a resurrection body without death a resurrection body a heavenly body a glorified well, that's the rapture of the elect. Now, we have the parable in the, in, from verse 32 to 35. We have the parable of the fig tree. When the sap rises in the fig tree and it puts out new leaves, we know summer is near. So, when we see all these things, all these signs, we shall know that Christ is near even at the gates. Verse 33. Now, we've already talked about the fig tree, so I'm not going to say a lot about it tonight. Uh, but it seems to me that they are, it has always been a symbol of the covenant people of God, and under the old covenant, the Jewish people. And the Lord was speaking in that connection, I'm sure, here in this parable. Therefore, we understand the fig tree and its renewal, its putting forth of leaves, is perhaps something to do with a, a re Jewish revival at the end of this age. I'm not going to say a lot about that because it's already in the notes. You can read it. What I've said about the reconstitution of the Jewish nation and so on and so forth. But I do want you to note that in verse 35 the Lord Jesus said that generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now this is correct whichever way you look at it. If he meant the destruction of the temple and what I predicted about the Jewish people and everything, well, not this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. It was right. It also is just as right to say that the generation which sees these signs will be the generation which sees the end. And if I understand it in connection with the fig tree, then it must mean the generation which in Scripture is 40 years approximately. The 40 years, uh, just going back to the Lord Jesus, when he said these words in about 30 AD, it was exactly a generation. They saw it. They saw the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so it can be with us that the generation which sees the reconstitution of the Jewish people and these other signs taking place will be the generation which sees the end. Now we come just finally in our last moments to the last part of this discourse from verse 36 of chapter 24 and the whole of chapter 25. I have entitled this last section The Vital Necessity of Watchfulness and Readiness in the Light of Christ's Coming. The vital necessity of watchfulness and readiness in the light of Christ's coming. We have here five parables, and nearly all of them are to do with being ready. Being in one shape or form, they are to do with being ready. Everyone. The first three are about being watchful and prepared. The last two are also really about being ready, but they're to do with service, conscientious and faithful service um, uh, in the work of uh, God. Now, we must take <coughs> note that over half of this discourse is taken up not with the signs, but with an appeal 
shall I put it this way, with serious warnings from the Lord about being ready and prepared. You see, some of us get so excited about the signs, they're so fascinating. They, 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 they take up, they possess our imagination. We say, oh, isn't it terrific? Isn't it amazing? This whole book, really, it's got all that in it about, about what's happening around us. And we forget that the Lord dwelt not so much on the signs as on being ready. <laughs> and he gave parable after parable, well over half of this, this discourse, illustrating this one simple thing, be ready. And if the Lord is so anxious for us to be ready, I take it that there is every possibility we shall be unready. <laughs> Knowing what we are and what is in us, we shall be unready. You take um, chapter 24. Let me just read a few verses to you. Verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord cometh. Verse 44. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse um, 46. Um, Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know. Chapter 25, verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Verse 29 of chapter 25, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance, but from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, be prepared. The whole message of the last part of this, of this discourse is be ready, be prepared, be watchful. For at any time, once these signs are being fulfilled, the Lord may come. We can even be students of prophecy. We can know all the systems of prophecy that there are in the book. We can know all about the complexities and intricacies of it and discuss it at length and be wholly unprepared for the Lord's coming. We can be wholly unprepared for the Lord's coming. Oh, if only we could underline that enough. Well now, the, from chapter 24, verse 36 to 51, the whole of the last part of, of that chapter, I have called it, entitled it, the need to be ready for Christ's coming. No one knows, verse 36, no one knows the day nor the hour. That's why we can't give a date, or a month, or a year. No one knows. You can know with certainty that anyone who fixes a date is of the devil. That's putting it as bluntly as I can. It's of the devil. For God's word says no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. Some evidently know better than the angels or the Son and fixed dates. It's happened again and again, and unfortunately, even amongst real Christians. There's been date fixing. It is impossible. But because we don't know the day or the hour does not mean that we do not know the general time. For the whole of this chapter is given, signs are given to us that we may be able to tell. The Lord himself said, when you see the fig tree, you know uh, putting forth leaves, you know summer is near. 
So we are to understand that the time is coming near, even if we don't know the day or the hour. Human life will continue exactly as it's always continued, just as in the days of Noah, marrying, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, the whole lot going on right up to the moment. And this is why the Lord stresses the need to be ready, because this spirit gets into us. We see the whole of life rumbling on, and we say, oh no, there must be, must be, uh, it must be longer, it can't be, oh, we're being fanciful, or he's always been rather excitable when it comes to this kind of thing. I mean, um, it, it just, we mustn't take it too seriously, see. As in the days of Noah, they will continue right up to the flood came and they were cut off. All will continue exactly as it has done, in one sense. In spite of the wars, in spite of the tribulation, in spite of all these other things, life will continue normally. It's extraordinary how it does. You remember in the Blitz, it was extraordinary how the life of London just continued, as always. Everyone put up those notices, business as usual. <laughs> it, it, it's just typical of human beings. Life will go on, right up to that point. Now, I want you to notice the suddenness of the rapture of the saints. You see, two will be in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding, one taken, one left. As I said, they'll be having a little discussion. Oh, one's gone. <laughs> Where's she gone? <laughs> two men will be in the field. Perhaps they won't be talking. <laughs> and then one will turn around and he's gone. Just gone. Just like that. Why we could be in a meeting like this and suddenly two-thirds of the seats are empty. I don't know what's going to happen to the rest of you. You'll just have to carry on as best you can. I did once think of putting some instructions in the safe. I'm not saying that I expect to go. Uh, but I did wonder once whether to be absolutely um, quite honest about it and put all instructions for any who should by any chance be left because it's as real as that there will come a day when suddenly perhaps two-thirds half of the company will just be gone and there's no possibility you won't be able to phone you know have a little talk with them wives will be gone husbands will be left husbands will be gone wives will be left children will go parents will be left parents will go children will be left that's the rapture taking of those who are ready. Now you must remember that this is not just a question of a division between those who are saved and unsaved, though of course obviously that is the division. But I believe that this is between believer and believer because you must remember this was not a public discourse. It was given to disciples and every you that was given was to them. You, you the Christian disciples, you my children. Two will be in a field, one taken, one left. Two women grind, one taken, one left. That's why we've got to be ready. Then he goes straight on to the parable of the householder. And he tells of the parable of the man who had a thief in the night. I'm not, it's so simple you can read it yourself. It's in verse 42 to 44. And he says, be ready. If he'd known that the thief was coming, he would have sat up all night with a shotgun. <coughs> but he didn't know. So he went to sleep and he got burgled. And that'll be just like some of you. You know all about the coming again of the Lord, but you say, oh, it won't happen, not yet. Suddenly it will happen. And you were not ready. So you will be left. 
And then we had the parable of the faithful and wise servant in verse 45 to 51. And this illustrates the need to be conscientious and devoted and not to abuse God's calling and gifts. If that servant, says the Lord, starts to beat his fellow servants and to drink with the drunkards and so on, then the master of the house will come back and will throw him out. In other words, don't let us abuse the privilege of uh, being subjects of God's grace and of the gifts of God being given to us and the ministry of God that has been entrusted to us. But let us in humility serve one another and be conscientious in the exercise of the gifts that are ours of the ministry and function which he has given to us. The need to be ready. All the way through this passage of the Lord underlines the need to be ready. Then we have the parable of the ten virgins, chapter 25, the first 13 verses. Now, what is this ten virgins? Of course, we all speak of the ten virgins. Philip's puts it ten bridesmaids. That brings it much more home to us all. The ten bridesmaids. These were all young girls, um, probably um, up to 12 years of age. And um, they were the bridesmaids at a wedding. Now, in this wedding, the bridegroom, on the day of the wedding, the evening of the wedding, after dusk, he used to go home to the bride. At first, he used to go and collect the bridesmaids after the actual wedding service, because they all went home. And then he went with them after dusk with their lamps alight in a procession to the bride's home, and they collected the bride and her friends and her relatives, and they all went in procession off to her new home. And then the jollities and festivities lasted anything up to seven days. If you were poor, one evening. If you were a little richer, a few evenings. If you were wealthy, at least seven days. They had big weddings in those days. They lasted some time. People had a holiday. <coughs> there was no such thing as trade unions in those days. People didn't have annual holidays at all. But when there was a wedding, they took a holiday. They were all given a holiday. And so it was with the ten bridesmaids. You see, here were ten bridesmaids. Now, mark what they all had in common. They were all dressed in the same dress. They all had lamps, verse 1. They all had oil in their lamps. Very important. Every one of them had oil in their lamps. And they all had their lamps alight. So much for people who say we have here nominal Christians and Christians. I, I do not think you can take parables too far, but I mean the fact of the matter is how you get nominal Christians and Christians here, I don't know. In other words, born again believers and nominal Christians. You can't get it. The fact is these are all believers. They're all dressed alike, they've all got lamps, they've all got oil in their lamps, which means the Holy Spirit today, if we understand oil as it's normally, as in its normal way throughout Scripture. And they're, they're and this is the point most people, most people have got the idea that the, the parable of the ten virgins is that five had, they all had lamps, but five had lamps without any oil in it and therefore not a light. It doesn't say that. For in verse 8 it says, give us oil, our lamps are going out. This is a very high standard. It, it hits us all. So, another little point is this, they all slept. <laughs> the faithful bridesmaids slept. And as if the Lord wanted to underline, he says in um, verse um, uh, 4, 
five, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. <laughs> so it's not just a question that five of them were lethargic and drowsy, the five with oil in their lamps and oil flasks with them, they slumbered and slept. Nothing wrong with that. And they all awoke. Here's another little point. The whole ten awoke together. And furthermore, all ten trimmed their lamps. See, because we've got the hymns that say, or oh, the one we sang about our lamps all trimmed and burning. <laughs> As if five of them hadn't trimmed their lamps, but they did trim their lamps. Then we get to the point, five say to the other five, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. They hadn't got the reserves. What a high standard. It's not that they're not on fire. It's not that they haven't the Holy Spirit. It's that they haven't got the reserve. For the story is this. Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, shall be compared to ten maidens who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil. Extra to the lamps. <laughs> they had reserves. What is the Lord really trying to teach us in a story like that? The lesson is that we should be ready. We can't just wake up suddenly one day and say, the Lord's going to come back, I must be ready. Then we rush around to and say, help me, help me, please help me. I believe the Lord's going to come back, I really believe it. Help, you cannot do what you should have done in weeks and months and years. Dear friend, you can't wake up in a moment. All these parables teach the same lesson. There's got to be a history of conscientiousness. In other words, you've got to wake up and start to be conscientious and start to be responsible and start to walk before God and start to be prepared for that coming day. Uh, then we have from verse 14 to 30 the parable of the talents and this is a different kind of parable but again it is very very interesting um, a man goes away uh, abroad and he entrusts the whole of his property and capital to three servants to one he gives five talents to another he gives two talents and to another he gives one well Phillips puts it simply. He says 5,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds, and 1,000 pounds so that we can understand it, which is very good. Helps us. Now, the whole point is, is that these servants, what do they do with what is given to them by the master? One goes away and he makes out of his 5,000, 10,000. The other goes away with his 2,000 and he makes 4,000. And the other one, who's like a lot of us, said, well, now then I must guard this very carefully. So he digs a hole in the garden and buries it. And no doubt he watched it day and night. And dug it up every now and again just to see it was okay. Polished <laughs> it and put it back. It's got to be ready for the Lord's coming. Two had increased, one remained static. It was exactly what the Lord had given that one that was returned. Probably beautifully polished, cared for. But the Lord, the Master, was angry. Now, what is the point behind it? This parable illustrates the need for us to explore what God has for us, to appropriate what God has provided, and to exploit everything that is ours. I use the word because the whole point of this is commerce. Exploit. 
exploitation. In other words, you take the five talents and you exploit the five talents and you make them bring another five talents in. You take the two and you make them uh, bring another two in. And all the Lord wanted of that poor dear last servant was that he took his one little talent and made out of it two. <coughs> The trouble with a lot of us is we say, oh, I've only got one. I'm a very small little Christian. You know, very humble, very insignificant, very unworthy. Yes, maybe you are. So generally speaking, if someone else calls you unworthy, insignificant and humble, you won't like it. <laughs> but we all say, oh, well, I am so unworthy. God doesn't look at that. He could be quite angry about it. He says, that's not the point. It's what you're doing with what I've given you. You may have very little, but have you doubled it? Have you doubled it? In other words, here is a picture of what God has given us of Christ. Now, if you look through in the notes you'll have next week, you will see a number of scriptures in the New Testament. I want you to look at them. To each one is given to us a measure of faith, according to the gift of God. Another place it says, let us minister according as God hath given us of his grace. To each one of us is given something of Christ, according to the gift of Christ, says Paul in Ephesians 4. In other words, every one of us has got something. 1 Corinthians 12 says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one to the prophet with all. In other words, everyone is given something of God. Now God says, what are you doing with what I've given? Are you using it for increase? Are you contributing it? Or are you burying it and saying, Lance doesn't seem to ever notice me anyway. The other brothers don't notice me anyway. And in that company I'm overlooked, so I won't push myself. Or you wait. When it comes to the end, the Lord won't listen to that kind of excuse and say, Oh, I see, I see, I am sorry. He won't say that. He will say, you take away that. They are not worthy to have that gift. Their salvation they will not lose, but the gift there will be taken away. You understand? That's a serious thing. In other words, the whole point of this parable is in the light of the coming again of the Lord and the coming kingdom is what are we doing with what God has given us? Are we prepared for his coming? It's not a question that you who've got one talent, you say, I can't make ten. I can't do it. It's no good. I can't. It's God doesn't expect you to make ten. He expects you to make two. <coughs> if you've got five, he doesn't expect you to make six. He wants you to make ten. He wants you to double what you've got. Now, it's no good just reveling in the second coming of Christ. What are we doing with what has been entrusted to us on the Lord? Lastly, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, in the East, especially in the Palestine area, sheep and goats are mixed up together very, very often indeed. You see them all just uh, jostling along together. And here was the parable of the sheep and the goats and uh, the sorting out. Goats on the left hand and, and, and the sheep on the right hand. The shepherd sorting them out with his stick so that they go one on that way, one on the other, one on that way, one on the other. So he's got the goats all together and the sheep all together. 
Um, it's a parable which illustrates the final judgment and sorting out of all mankind by the righteous judge. And I want you to note that the thing that the Lord, that is the basis for the sorting out, is not profession, but possession evidenced in works of love. Now that's very, very important because we so-called Protestants have gone so far in the other direction that sometimes we forget the plain teaching of the Word of God. The Lord Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. It's the way a man behaves in the office, the way he behaves at home, the way he behaves in his family. That is the fruit. What is the fruit? That's the thing. By their fruit ye shall know, not what they say and what they appear to act out, but what they possess, what is evidenced in, 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 their, in their lives. And here the Lord uh, puts it very, very remarkably. And he puts it, I think, in a way that perhaps brings us to a certain amount, to a place where it's rather wonderful from one angle. The weakest, most insignificant Christian is a part of Christ. Isn't that amazing? You see, the whole point of this parable is that they came... Uh, just forgive me, I'll just finish on this. Um, the whole point of this parable is that they came and they said to the Lord, he said, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he said, when I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And they said, when, Lord, when did we see you? The Lord's sick. When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison, Lord? You've got it wrong. And then he says, when, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. The least of these. Isn't that beautiful? The least. Not the greatest. <laughs> but the least. The most insignificant, the most unworthy. What you did to that unworthy, insignificant Christian, you were doing to me. Now, if you look at it like that, think what will happen in the glory. It has both a terrible kick back at us and a wonderful possibility of glory. For every time you do something to some child of God, you're doing it to the Lord. doesn't matter how simple it is. Some little act of kindness and love done to some person who may be quite insignificant is done to the Lord. The Lord says, I'll not forget that. I'll not forget it. You didn't do that because you were getting something in return. That was done to me. In the same way, every time we do something to an insignificant, unworthy <coughs> Christian, which is unkind, unloving, uncharitable, every time we criticize, every time we tell a story about them which is unkind every time we backbite or gossip we're, we're doing it about Christ and when it's looked at like that it has a very, very sobering effect indeed so we come to the end of this section and uh, uh, what is left to us now are just the last two chapters of the 
gospel according to Matthew. We've come to the end of this that I've entitled um, these two chapters, the final coming of the king and the kingdom. And it's a wonderful thing to recognize that its coming is certain, sure, and fixed, and nothing can stop it. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared for the first time and offered himself once for the sins of the many. But the second time he appears, he comes to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Isn't that wonderful? The basis of the coming, the final coming of the kingdom of heaven is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He's done it. He's done it. And when he ascended into glory to the right hand of God the Father, it was the guarantee that the end is absolutely secure. Therefore, every single true Christian is on the winning side. They can lose everything. But they can never lose God's victory. The end is there. And that's why the Lord says in this same portion, as recorded in Luke, and not a hair of your head shall perish. In other words, go through the tribulation, lose your physical life, lose your possessions, lose your family, lose everything that this world calls worth having and not a hair of your head will perish. Because the end is secure. The kingdom's coming and what you've lost you will get that 100 fold in the end. That's how certain the coming of the kingdom is. So you know we're nearer to that day than when we first believed. <laughs> and you think about it. Some people say, oh, well, you know, they've always been expecting the Lord to come again, always. Luther did, you know, and Augustine did, and, uh, and Paul did, and, uh, uh, and Wesley did, and, uh, and so on, and uh, probably it's thousands of years off. Well, I don't know, but one thing I do know, we're nearer to the coming of the Lord than the day when we first believed. And maybe we're very much nearer than we think. No more moaning, no more groaning, and no need of an upstairs room. Shall <laughs> we pray? Now, dear Lord, we pray that the result of the study will not just be that our imaginations are fired, or that, Lord, uh, we, we start to become obsessed with thy coming again, just the signs of it, the technicalities of it. But Lord, we pray that the end may be that our lives are prepared for thy coming. And in the light of thy coming again, we may be purified, Lord, and made ready. Oh, that that day, Lord, when thou dost come, we shall not be ashamed, but ready for thee. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.